Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books and Mathematics. Our guest today is Al Pazimentier, who has been a guest before. He's with us today as a co-author of The Mathematics of Everyday Life. We all are told, practically from the moment we enter school, that mathematics is important because it permeates practically all aspects of our lives. But for the most part, we don't really notice it except for those moments, such as when we balance a checkbook, that we know we're doing mathematics. This book, which requires nothing more than high school math, is a wonderful way to see that mathematics really is all around us, in our home, in our workplace, in the entertainments we enjoy, and in the world we live in. Al, welcome again to the show. Thank you very much. Al, what motivated you to write this book? Well, actually, I've written about one a year for the past uh, 16 years or so for a simple reason then I'm tired of having people tell me when I meet them socially and I tell them that my field is mathematics, oh my gosh, I'm always terrible in mathematics. And I find that that's a terrible uh, disservice to our society and our culture. And uh, it all began in 2002, on January 2nd, 2002, when I uh, did an op-ed in the New York Times on palindromic numbers for the simple purpose of trying to show folks that you can have fun with numbers and there's some unusual things that occur. And uh, following those, uh, that, that op-ed was about a half page in the New York Times on January 2nd, um, the uh, response was overwhelming. I must have gotten four to 500 emails, some asking me questions about how to deal with this and that and so on. But amongst them were some publishers asking if I would do a book for the general audience. And so I've done a book every year for Prometheus Books up in Amherst, New York, and uh, on just a variety of things. And the folks can look it up on uh, on the Internet and see what those books are. But the last one, the one that just recently came out, we entitled The Mathematics of Everyday Life. Because wherever we are and whatever we do, mathematics is somewhere there. And unfortunately, most people tend to ignore it. And uh, there's some funny things and some curious things. And what we're trying to do in this book is to show all the various aspects, or as many as we can, of how mathematics is uh, in our lives and something we shouldn't take for granted. I mean, some simple things, uh, which, for example, if you have two frying pans and one has a 10-inch diameter and the other one's at 12-inch diameter, you say, oh, wow, it's only two inches, not a big deal. Well, there is a big deal. It's a 44% difference in area. So you say, so, wow, that's unbelievable. And this, this kind of thing is one of many, many examples. But uh, as we go through the uh, discussion, we'll, we'll highlight a few others. So I, uh, th- that's, that's what's motivating me, to show people how uh, in some cases, 
I've done books on pi or Fibonacci numbers or triangles or circles or mistakes in mathematics, all kinds of things. But at this point, we're talking about where it is in our everyday lives. You know something? You raise a very interesting question here that just occurred to me, and I hope you, uh, I hope you all consider answering it. Um, one of the difficulties is that you mentioned that okay, you're writing a book. It explains mathematics, um, how mathematics appeals to us in our appears in our everyday life. But the people who are likely to pick up that book are people who are already interested in mathematics. So in some sense, a book like this preaches to the choir. Is there a way to get around that, do you think? That's a very good observation. And I will tell you that many of the people who write me are people in various professions, physicians, lawyers, engineers, uh, academics of other kinds and sorts. And uh, you're absolutely right about that. Somehow, it would be great if we could uh, somehow break through to the everyday person. Now, I did a book, which I'm just reading the proofs on now, on how parents can become more active in their child's education of mathematics. And there are so many things that parents can do that could uh, probably uh, make the next generation more uh, or less math phobic. For example, a parent should never tell a kid uh, you're doing your math homework. Oh, I didn't like it myself. Or just pass the course. That's all I care about. Don't get it. You know, just don't fail it. Instead, the expectation for a parent, for, from a parent to a child, very often in math is very low. Whereas if a kid comes home with two tests, a kid, uh, got a 75 in English and a 75 in math, the teacher gets all upset. How could you only get a 75 in English? You speak it every day. Whereas if you get a 75 in mathematics, oh, am I glad you didn't fail. I didn't do better myself. So the kid is happy with the uh, minimal achievement in math and, and knows they have to uh, hunker down to, uh, to do better in English. The other thing, of course, is in today's world, we're faced with a very unpleasant situation in most school districts. And that is the teachers are being rated by how well their students perform on standardized tests. Their future depends on their students' success on these tests. Therefore, the teachers tend to teach to the test. And when you teach to the test, believe me, the teaching suffers. All they care about is, do you know how to do this problem? Just remember, this is going to be on the test. Not, hey, let me show you some great things in mathematics and and. In other words, a lot is lost by the teaching to the test syndrome. So I'm hoping that to answer your question in a <laughs> somewhat brief fashion, haha. Um, I'm hoping that maybe the title "Math in Everyday" will keep people, uh, uh, will make people curious. What do you mean the mathematics of everyday life? I live in everyday life. What kind of mathematics could there be? And if they open it up, maybe they'll see things that are somewhat attractive. But um, it's hard to say. It really is uh, very difficult to say what is the, uh, the situation on these things. Yeah. You know, you're right, though. You know, let's get to the book now, because after all, the okay. book is the reason that we're doing the interview. Sure. It starts sure. off with historical high points. Could you describe some high points in the development of systems of numbers? 
Well, you know, there are so many different cultures in the world. There are the um, uh, the, the uh, Babylonians who used a base 60, and there are all these things. And how do, you know, we had the Romans, for example, use these, <clears throat> what we now call letters, V, the X, the I, and so on. Um, and if you think about doing arithmetic, as we know arithmetic, with these symbols, it becomes very difficult. Now, the Egyptians didn't use any fractions except uh, unit fractions and two-thirds. And just think, if you had to measure something that's not one of those fractions, you've got to break it up into those uh, small particles. So along came this young fellow, uh, Leonardo of Pisa, who by today's terms is called Fibonacci. And as a young child, he went with his father to the African coast, where he... Uh, where the, where the uh, Italians had some uh, business dealings, and he interacted with the Arabs that lived there. And the Arabs used an Indian system, which is what we use now. We call it the Hindu-Arabic system for those reasons. He got it from the Arabs, but it's, a Hindu, it's a, uh, an Indian system. And it's our numbers, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and a 0. And uh, he was the one who introduced that in 1202 in a book called Liribachi. And the first sentence in the book, he says, I use these wonderful Indian numbers. And he gives those numbers. And throughout the book, he used it. It took 50 years before Europe began to use those numerals. But the, the story is so interesting that it took this kind of a strange uh, experience to bring us to the point where we have very usable a very usable number system. Um, okay. Uh, then one of the interesting things that we have in terms of numbers that have been, that you've actually had a lot of interest in are Fibonacci numbers. And I think you referred to these earlier. What are they and how did they arise? Okay. Well, in that book that he, he wrote a few books. Now you have to realize writing a book in those days was not printing it and selling it. It was written by hand. And uh, it's a pretty large book called Lira Abachi, and in chapter 12 of that book, the book is, uh, contains a lot of uh, everyday kind of measuring problems and, and figuring problems, and in chapter 12, he has a book, uh, he has a, a problem where he talks about the regeneration of rabbits, that it takes a pair of rabbits one month to mature, and after they mature for one month, they give birth the second month to a pair of rabbits, and each Pair, new pair requires one month to mature and give birth to another pair. And the question was, how many rabbits will there be at the end of one year? And if you count the number of rabbits each month, you started with one pair. At the end of the first month, the second month, you have still that one pair who matured. And then you have another pair coming in. So you have one, one, two, three, five, eight, thirteen. In other words, this sequence of numbers you start with one and one, and you add those two to get two. Then the one and the two gives you three. The two and the three gives you five. The three and the five gives you eight. In other words, you always add the last two numbers, beginning with one, one, to get to the next number. Now you say, well, what good are these numbers? Well, these are the most amazing numbers. They are everywhere to be found in nature, in in finance, in uh architecture, wherever you look, those numbers appear. Now, they appear in different forms. For example, uh, they're also very useful. Um, 
it just so happens that we can use those numbers to pretty closely uh, uh, compute kilometers to miles and miles to kilometers. For example, let's just keep in mind two two of them in mind. Let's say eight and thirteen are two consecutive numbers. If I'm going eight miles an hour, I'm actually going thirteen kilometers per hour. And if I'm going thirteen kilometers per hour, uh, thirteen miles per hour, the next number up would be the twenty-one kilometers per hour. So it's um, a very useful thing in that regard. Um, when you take, uh, well, maybe we'll talk about the golden ratio a little later on, but it's they're related to the golden ratio. If you look at the spirals, the number of spirals on a pineapple, if you count, there are three sequences of spirals, two in one direction and a third in another direction. If you count the spirals going around in each direction, there each of them is a, uh, is a Fibonacci number. So it's... Uh, they're in nature. For example, if you take a, let's take a pear tree, for example, just for the sake of uh, uh, an example. If you uh, take a pear tree that has never been trimmed and all the branches are intact and you take the bottommost branch and you count the number of branches that you need to get to, to get to a branch that's in exactly the same direction as that first branch, the number of branches you pass will always be a Fibonacci number. Uh, but it just goes on and on and on. The regeneration of the male bee uh, also gives you a Fibonacci number. It, it just, it, there's no end. There's so much that I wrote a whole book about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not a Fibonacci expert. In fact, you just exhausted my knowledge of Fibonacci numbers with that conversation. But as a mathematician, one of the things that you constantly do is you constantly think of problems that relate to uh, problems that you've just heard about. And it just occurred to me with the rabbits that the rabbits are going to die. Um, And it occurred to me that I didn't know whether or not if you subtracted off the rabbits who died um, from the original sequence of Fibonacci numbers, whether the result is either a different sequence, in other words, the sequence of living rabbits is a Fibonacci sequence, or whether it isn't. Do you happen to know the answer to that off the top of your head? Sorry, I asked you. Uh, I don't think Fibonacci assumed that the rabbits would ever die. Oh, okay. (laughs) But a mathematician would. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, uh, the Fibonacci numbers carry on um, to in, to infinity, if you will. But there's so many weird things happen. If you take the first 144 uh, places of uh, of of pi, you get a Fibonacci number. I mean, it's it's we don't want to go there. You need yeah. to look at that. There's so many things, uh, but he didn't. The rabbits never die. Oh, okay. Okay. Another thing that I found very interesting in your book was the four color problem. And I think people can relate to the four color problem because it's understandable. And how does the problem relate to the idea of the acceptability of proofs generated by computers? (laughs) Very good question. I guess it was about 1976, two mathematicians from Chicago. uh, Well, let me back up. The four color map problem is a long long-standing problem. In other words, the problem is this. If you have a map 
what is the most number, the highest number of colors you would need in order to color any map, regardless of where the boundaries are, with the proviso that no two uh, countries that share a common border are the same color. So that, for example, Canada and Mexico can have the same color, but Canada and the United States cannot because they share a common border. So that said, the question has been, no one has ever been able to draw a map that required more than four colors. You can, I mean, here I gave you one just now in North America, to, uh, three, uh, two colors would suffice. One, a red, say, for Canada, a blue for the United States, and a red for Mexico, and you've got the North American continent pretty well covered. So uh, that is one example. But there are very complicated maps where there are a lot of interacting and interconnecting uh, uh, pieces of land, and we've never been able to draw a map that required more than four colors. So, But now, can you prove that? And no one has been able to prove it. Well, in as I mentioned, in the 70s, two mathematicians from Chicago were able to prove it, but not in the traditional sense. They did it by computer. In other words, they instructed the computer to calculate every possible map that could be drawn in some orderly fashion. And they showed that there was never a map that required more than uh, four colors. Now, purists in mathematics say that's not a proof. But for all intents and purposes, they demonstrated it is, and it does. It did close the book on that situation. Well, I remember when I read about this, uh, one of the things that mathematicians do is they look at a problem and they say, well, what about if you did it in some other situation? And although I never looked at it, um, one of the questions is, what happens if you had a map on a donut? In other words, you have a word, you have a world that's shaped like a donut and you ask the same question. What's the minimal number of colors needed to color a map on a donut? And interestingly enough, it's seven. Um, but also, even more interestingly, it didn't need a computer to prove it. And uh, the mathematicians were able to do that. And it's sort of, you know, it, uh, the question of what, uh, why, when computer proofs become applicable, because uh, admittedly, it may only be of interest to mathematicians, but there are theorems out there that 15,000 pages you can't look at that in a lifetime. Um, so you just have a number of people putting it together. But sooner or later, computers are probably going to take over the business of creating new mathematics. And that's why I think that this is important. Yeah, it could be. It could be. Uh, if we only knew uh, our crystal ball sharp, if our crystal ball was sharp enough, uh, we would be able to... Uh, to, to answer those questions. <laughs> well, a computer will sharpen the crystal ball. Um, earlier, you mentioned something called the golden ratio. Why does it appear so, what is it, and why does it appear so frequently in art and architecture? Well, the golden ratio, it's obviously, um, is a ratio that, uh, let's back up and say it comes from the golden rectangle just for the moment. A golden rectangle is a rectangle that was demonstrated, let's put it that way, at the end of the 19th century by, uh, by um, psychologists as the most beautiful shaped rectangle. 
Now, that doesn't include the square because some people may say the square is most beautiful. So, uh, absenting the square, the golden rectangle is supposed to be the most beautiful. Now, what is a golden rectangle? A golden rectangle is one where the ratio of the length to the width is equal to the, I'm sorry, let's do it the other way around. The width to the length is to another fraction, which is the length plus the width to the length. So that it sounds confusing, but that ratio, L to W, as, I'm sorry, W to L, length, W to L, is as length plus width is to L. And what you then have is a ratio uh, that comes up, uh, which is often called, used the Greek letter phi, where the reciprocal and the actual number differ by one. The, if you com- calculate, it's about, the phi is 1.618 going on and on and on. And one less than, the, the reciprocal of that, the 0.618. And uh, it's quite amazing. It's the only number where the reciprocal and the number are uh, differ by one. Now, you say, well, what's the big deal about that? Somehow, it's um, in art, omnipresent. For example, Da Vinci knew about it. How did he know about it? He wrote, if you know that picture of the man standing there with his arms stretched out horizontally called the Vitruvian Man, um, he drew that picture for a book on the divine proportion, and that divine proportion is the golden ratio. And so Da Vinci drew this picture knowing this ratio, and yet he uses that ratio constantly. For example, if you had to box in Mona Lisa's head in a rectangle, just her head, her face, you will find it's a golden rectangle. It's in, in architecture. If you put a box around the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, Parthenon in Athens, Greece, it's a golden rectangle. There are so many examples of golden of the golden ratio in architecture. Some artists actually said they were using it and showed they were using it. Others just uh, did it either uh, by accident or by design. It's hard to tell, but it is quite an amazing uh, ratio. Um, I don't know how much more. For example, if you take a um, uh, a pentagon. A regular pentagon where all the sides are the same length and you draw the diagonals well the diagonals cut each other in the golden uh, ratio or if you take for example a golden rectangle and you draw the diagonals the angle form of the diagonals is the angle that we see all the time in uh, wristwatch advertisements if you look at a wristwatch advertisement in a newspaper you'll find a almost always show something like 10.09 or 10.10 as the time that is, is being exhibited on that particular wristwatch. And uh, that's the angle formed by the diagonals of a golden rectangle, or we call it the golden angle, supposedly the most beautiful angle. It's a matter of, dis, uh, of, of judgment, but uh, essentially what I'm saying is there, there are countless things. And if you're really interested... I wrote a book on the golden, the, the glorious golden ratio. So if people are interested in that, I welcome them to get a copy of the book.
Well, you know, a couple of things that you said about it resonate with things that you mentioned earlier in the conversation, one of which was the fact that it can be used to help convert kilometers to uh, miles and vice versa. And and the reason that that's true is that the ratio is that uh, one kilometer is approximately 0.62 miles and one mile is approximately... There you have the there you have the golden ratio, but you know when you were talking, you said Leonardo knew about it, and then all of a sudden you mentioned that yes, the Parthenon is in that ratio. Well, I don't think that was random. I think the Greeks planned that. Oh yeah, that so they obviously knew about it, and they had a reason for thinking it was golden as well. Probably. Yeah, it's it's hard to tell, and uh, we don't know. And because you, you know, because we've talked about both of these, perhaps you'd like to tell our readers about how the golden ratio is related to the Fibonacci numbers. Well, if you take the consecutive Fibonacci numbers and you take their ratio, in other words, uh, one to two, two to three, three to five, five to eight, that ratio, as you get larger and larger, gets closer and closer to the actual value of 1.618, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, the uh, limit of the consecutive Fibonacci number ratios uh, approaches the golden ratio exactly. Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty intriguing. Um, getting back to art, what is perspective and how has it changed art? Um, well, perspective is a very interesting uh, uh, concept. And again, I love to use Leonardo because he really did it well. If you look back... The fact that he is Italian and you are doesn't hurt either. No, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> oh, I thought you were. <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, if you're wondering what my name means, it's in the German dictionary exactly the way I spell it. And it means uh, a tassel maker. Oh, really? <laughs> so there you go. But in any case, um, if you look at the um, the um, the Last Supper in the Maria della Grazia in Milan, uh, what you have there is a picture that depicts perfect um, uh, perspectivity. In other words, if you walk into that hall of the Maria della Grazia building. At the end of the hallway, at the end of the building, the short wall has the entire Last Supper on it. And you feel that you can actually walk into that picture because the depth perception is so perfect. The, uh, the, the amazing thing is that people have been drawing the Last Supper for thousands of years. And the old ones, very old ones, you know, many hundreds of years before Leonardo, are so flat and almost silly looking. But he drew it in such a way that he encompassed this depth perception using perspectivity, where all the lines, the, the, including the frame lines, approach the, uh, the head of Jesus. And he used that as well in the Adoration of the Magi. He used that in, in a whole bunch of his artwork. Um, when it goes to, I think, either Jesus' right eye is where all those lines approach, the ceiling lights, the, the windows on the side, the tops and the bottoms of the windows, even the arms of some of the outstretched uh, 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 people in the picture all help 
that perspectivity. Now, the interesting thing, if you've ever visited that site, is that during World War II, uh, we bombed that building. But the Italians were clever enough to put sandbags on both sides of the wall. <coughs> and they have photographs of that entire building being flattened except for that wall. The wall stood, and then they built the building back around the wall. Well, that just goes to show that they understood what was important. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, another thing that your book discusses, which is something that I've always found intriguing, is a magic square. What is it, and why does it appear in a Durer painting? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I had My father had a cousin who was a uh, professor of art at Wesley University, and uh, long since passed. But uh, I once asked him that question, and he gave me two books by Edwin Panofsky, The Life and Works of Dürer. And the closest we ever came to where Dürer got that from is perhaps on a gravestone somewhere uh, in the 1400s. But the Dürer Magic Square is very interesting because, first of all, it's in a, uh, an etching called Melancholia. And uh, in this uh, etching... Uh, Dira, in the upper, he shows a picture of a frustrated, looks like a frustrated angel, uh, leaning on her, uh, on her shoulder, her shoulders leaning on uh, her head is, and so on, unhappy, it looks like it's unhappy, with a lot of mathematical tools. In the background, on the wall, hangs this square arrangement of numbers. Now, a magic square is known as a square arrangement of numbers, same number of rows and columns, where the sum of the columns and the rows is always going to be the same, as well as the diagonals. However, this particular one is very different. What Dira did was, the if you know how to construct a magic square, the middle two columns would come out at the bottom to be 1415. He flipped the two columns over, and he found the middle two columns to be at the bottom, 1514. Why? Because he drew the picture in the year 1514. And how do we know that? Because Albert Dürer always put his initials, A.D., and the year in the lower right-hand corner of the things he drew. So that's one thing. But by doing that, that particular magic square has so many more properties than another magic square uh, it, the sum of the numbers in the rows and columns is 34. The sum of the middle four is is 34. The sum of the four in each corner is 34. The sum of the squares and numbers of the first and third rows is the same, uh, 748 in this case, in the first and third columns and second and fourth columns. It, it just goes endlessly uh many, many relationships far beyond what you expect from a normal magic square. But these are the kinds of things we look at. People go to museums and they admire art. And then they may see this, say, oh, that's a nice picture. But look a little further into that. There you have your mathematics staring you in the face. And there, there's quite a bit of that kind of thing. For example, uh, there's mathematics in uh, in the the whispering halls, for example, in um, uh, if you know a, a headlight of a car has a parabolic reflector, where all the rays of light coming from the the source in the let's the source of light in the middle, which is very weak, 
reflects off that reflector and they all go straight out in one direction. Very intensive. Um, in at Grand Central Station, New York City, there is uh, there are spots where two people can stand and whisper to each other. And of course, there's a very funny, maybe not so funny situation when uh, the Capitol was first built in Washington, D.C. The Congress met in the uh, uh, rotunda there and uh, they found that two desks were so situated when one congressman spoke very softly at one of those spots, very softly whispering, he was able to be heard on the other end of the uh, uh, the, the uh, room by some other congressman until that was sort of uh, exposed and they moved the chairs around so it wouldn't happen. But th- that was a parabolic reflector on the ceiling. So, I mean, these are the kinds of things that are in everyday life and we should be aware of them. And I'm trying in this book to make people aware of some of these things. Well, you know, speaking of those two curves, the ellipse and the uh, and the parabola, each of them has something uh, has properties which we use in our current technology. For instance, um, the ellipse is used in lithotripsy, which is a method of uh, destroying small stones in the kip- in the kidneys. Because what can happen is you can focus sound waves precisely so that they destroy the small stones in the kidney, but don't harm the surrounding tissue. And I thought that was okay. That's much more interesting, at least to me, and much more. More relevant than uh, uh, than the whispering gallery, simply because the time may come when I have to undergo a procedure like that. And it's sort of nice to know that mathematics helps the procedure become more successful. Well, everybody has their own priorities. I wouldn't have much to do with it when uh, I, I'll be out cold when they do it to me. If they, if they. <laughs> okay, then uh, another thing which is of interest to me is you were discussing uh, parabolic reflectors, and you're thinking of it. Um, because parabolic reflectors go both ways. You can either put the searchlight in the center and have the rays go out parallel, or alternatively, you can look at it as a receiver. And the receivers are, they receive, that's our satellite dishes, that's our, our, uh, uh, the, uh, the dishes in the uh, VLA are parabolic, so if we ever get signals in from uh, uh, other civilizations, which are going to be very, very weak, they have to be reflected in such a way that we get every single last erg. And that's, of course, how we communicate with our far-flung satellites and far-flung rockets that are going to the edge of the solar system. Uh, all this is, you know, all this is geometry, and it's all fascinating to me. You may be interested in art. I'm more interested in technology. But it's difference no, of opinion that makes horse races. No, no, no. I think all of it's important. But I think even kids get a kick out of that because there are playgrounds. I know of one in Connecticut where they have two parabolic reflectors and a little bit of a stage. And a child stands on one of them and whispers. And the parabolic reflector sends that whisper to the other side where the other kid is standing, maybe uh, 50 feet away. And he whispers and they can communicate by whispering because both have a parabolic reflector behind them that's sending the the, uh, sound waves directly to the other. 
I think that's wonderful. And I remember it's also, uh, you're a New Yorker, but I'm a Chicagoan. And they have a whispering gallery in the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. And I remember being fascinated by it with it, uh, when I was a kid. Because yes, there's something fascinating about whispering and someone hearing you. Yeah, it is. It is. It's, but it's also embarrassing when it happens in Congress. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if it ha- you know, if we're discussing some of the things that they seem to be discussing today, which yeah, they probably well, were well, discussing. You saw they, they walked out of the room this time. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Um, Now, another thing is that, you know, curves which occur in geometry, some of the curves have extreme practical importance. And one of the ones that you discuss is catenary. What's a catenary and what is its importance in architecture? Well, it's it's a a curve that is formed by uh, the cables holding up a bridge, basically, uh, where you have an equal amount of stress along the way. And it looks like, it could look like a parabola or some kind of curve, but we call that a catenary. And it could be a chain if you have two poles, uh, two uh, poles, and you have a, a chain of, of constant uh, weight going along. That's also catenary. Um, it just happens to be the kind of thing that we use to hold up a bridge. Yeah, and um, another thing is that the catenary has a very interesting um, um, has a very interesting link to some of the p- questions that people were first investigating when they started talking about when they started looking at calculus. Now, admittedly, your book doesn't discuss calculus, and I think that's a good thing. Um, I think that when you start getting to higher level mathematics courses such as calculus, and you put that in a book, you're cutting down your potential audience, and I don't think. Think, you know, I, I think you made a wise choice when you wrote the book that we the way that you did. But nonetheless, um, the catenary, you know, if you look at the equation for a catenary, um, it requires more. I'm oh, were the Greeks aware of catenaries? I don't think so. Not that they called it that, but uh, they probably had them because. If you take a rope and you hold it that way, it's going to be a catenary. Oh, so, yeah, they would have, they would have, they would have seen it, but whether yeah. or not they would have, uh, you know, whether right. or not they would have investigated it mathematically, right. I'm not. You know, sure. Yeah, but yeah. I'll tell you, you're absolutely right, and we have made a very, very conscious effort in all of these books that I've mentioned to you not to use any mathematics beyond perhaps and very gently second year algebra, but typically. Just basic algebra and basic geometry is all you need. And when we introduce something that might require something from the, a little higher algebra, but not very much, we introduce it and we explain it so that someone who doesn't remember it has a chance to recall it from his school days. You know, one of the things that I want to tell listeners is that we're discussing only a few of the topics that were in the book and ones that uh, ones that Al felt were most visually accessible when you were talking about them. But there are some wonderful areas. In fact, I absolutely love this about how uh, about how mathematics is connected to economics and the stock market, which happens to be an interest of mine that listeners will certainly be interested in reading about that we'd never be able to get to in this interview. So I want to make sure that they're at least aware that they're there and that not everything in the book deals with geometry. There's a lot of stuff that deals with 
things involving numbers, relationships that are part of the economic structure of life. Correct. Another plug for your book. Thank you. <laughs> okay. But as they say, the, the artwork, uh, when people observe art, and if they have a background as to about a little bit of the golden ratio and so on, uh, the Fibonacci numbers, they'll look at it in a somewhat different way than they would just by staring at it. But uh, as I say, there, there's just so much um, uh, stuff that we have there. I mean, uh, if you in sports, for example, uh, when you shoot pool and you want to bank a ball off the side cushion to hit another ball, um, you can get the exact spot on the cushion to hit very simply by placing a little mirror down along the cushion, looking in the mirror to see the target ball, and removing the mirror once you've marked that spot. If you hit that spot, it'll hit the ball. You're and using that, the angle of incidence equals the angle of reflection. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there's that kind of thing, and, and, and you know, in tennis, and, and, and you know, there's mathematics wherever we look. Um, if you're running down a sideline, uh, playing soccer, for example, at what point, let's say you want to shoot to get to the, uh, you want to shoot a goal along somewhere along the sideline of a soccer field. What point along that line gives you the largest opening of the, uh, of the goalposts. And again, that's very, very, very simple elementary geometry. So I mean, we have stuff like that in there, the Monty Hall problem, uh, which is one of the most, counterintuitive things going. Um, uh, in other words, if you remember that show, Let's Make a Deal, uh, uh, and uh, you know where you have to pick a, uh, a, a door. Uh, I don't know if your, the readers, uh, the, the listeners know what that is, but uh, the, the television show that goes back to probably the 50s or early 60s, where the host's name was Monty Hall, and it's called today the Monty Hall problem because it's still very controversial. And the, uh, the the situation was there were three doors, and behind two doors is a goat, and behind the third door is a car. And if the contestant picks the car, they get the car. If they pick a goat, they get nothing. So he calls somebody up from the audience, comes up, and he stands there in front of the doors, and he says, uh, which door would you like? And let's say in this particular case, the gentleman or woman picks uh, door number three. Now, Monty Hall knows where the goats are. So he now opens one of the doors that exposes a goat. And now comes the key part of the whole problem. He then says to the contestant, would you care to stay at the door you originally chose, or would you rather switch to the other closed door? And everybody thinks, well, it doesn't matter. It's either there or there. It's 50-50. It is not. And that's the part that's so uh, uh, controversial. There are books written about just that one problem. But the answer is, and I'll tell the audience this, it is advantageous to switch to the other door. And <laughs> we don't have the time to go into it now, but it, the explanation is very, very simple in the book. Um, there are things like you walk along the street and you notice the manhole covers are round. I was about to get to that question. <laughs> Why are manhole covers round or sewer covers? And I have yet, I think one person was able to give me the right answer right away. P- 
people say, well, it fits better, it, it, it's bigger, it's nicer, whatever. And the answer is very, very simple. And we explain it here that a round cover can never fall in. Because if you ever watch how these people open those covers, they take a crowbar and they slide the cover because they're very heavy. They slide the cover off and then they push it back on. Now, if you have a square one and you push it back on in such a way where maybe it tilts a little bit, the, since the diagonal of the square is longer than the side, it could fall right in, whereas a round one will never fall in. And then we go on to talk about other shapes that could be used that also won't fall in, namely a rouleau triangle, which is something that's very easily constructed, uh, was done by a German uh, mathematician whose last name uh, was um, uh, Rouleau, and where he decided he wanted to con construct a button, you know, for a clothes, a clothes button that has the same properties as a round button. Well, you know, when you have a round button, you don't have to look at the button. You know how to push it in, and it goes into the buttonhole. Well, if you have a rectangular button, then you've got to slide it in so the short end goes through the buttonhole. Well, a round one is advantageous because you don't have to look. Well, the Rouleau triangle, which is very, very simply constructed by simply taking an equilateral triangle, namely a triangle where all the three sides have the same length, and swing an arc on each of the three sides where the center of the circle is at the vertex opposite it, and you get this uh, triangle that has uh, three arcs on each side, one on each side, and that is a Rouleau triangle, and that has the same properties as a circle. It can be used as a sewer cover, and there are uh, places in the United States where that's done. You can use it as a um, as a uh, turnoff on a fire hydrant, because on a fire hydrant, you'll notice most fire hydrants use a pentagon rather than a hexagon or a or a square or anything like that because they don't want people to just take a wrench and grab it. If with a pentagon, you can't grab it so easily with a wrench and with a Rouleau triangle, if you put a wrench on it, a monkey wrench, it'll just slide on along as same as it would with a circle. Yeah. I always like that. <laughs> so there you have an everyday life situation for you. Yeah. Um, Al, it's been a pleasure uh, conversing with you. And one of the things that I always do when I wrap up uh, an interview is that uh, actually I do two things. Here's the first. Um, how can listeners get in touch with you? Well, I guess the best way in today's world is the uh, email. And my email address is ASP1818 at gmail.com. That's AS as in Sam or as in Stephen in this case, uh, P, as in Pazimintir, uh 1818 at gmail.com. Um, thank you. And the second question that I always ask is, do you have any projects on the horizon that you think our listeners might be interested in? Yes, actually, I just finished one book, which will be out in probably less than a year from now, on 50 biographies of famous mathematicians, and the uh, stuff they did that made them famous. 
You better and, include that. <laughs> and, <laughs> but what, what makes it interesting is you'd find that it, it sort of underlines the notion that a genius mathematician is usually socially unfit or does not uh, acclimate too well with society, and which we sometimes call crazy. And uh, there's some comical situations, and some of the very sad, of course. Uh, I've just finished a book on how parents can support their children in uh, studying mathematics at home, not only by showing them all these unusual things, but also how, what their their uh, psychological bent should be in dealing with the kids and also familiarizing themselves themselves with the current way we look at mathematics, which is in many cases different from the way the parents have learned mathematics because we have the common core standards now and so on. Then I have another book on coaching, which is also coming out early in 2019, uh, how to prepare to become a math coach in a school. And I'm working on a couple of books on problem solving and so on and so forth. I keep working so you know there's an old adage he who rests rusts and i don't want to rust uh okay i'll remember that <laughs> but maybe my time for rusting has started anyway we've enjoyed <laughs> we've enjoyed the conversation immensely alan we look forward to talking to you in the future take care thank you very much okay bye-bye right. bye-bye